If I was to ask you this morning, how was your week? How would you, how would you respond? If you were going to give a typical response, you might say, that was great. If you were to give a more thoughtful response, you might say, well, this part of my week was pretty good. This part of my week was challenging. And you might be a little bit more honest, which is something I would encourage you to do. But whatever your response would be, I wonder how different it would be if I was to ask you, so how is your prayer life this week? Gulp, right? <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, that's not a polite question to ask in polite company. Because uh, most of us probably feel like we are bad prayers. And prayer is one of those things that is hard to talk about without feeling loads of guilt. Now, some of that comes from the, the fact that just prayer is hard, and I think we should acknowledge that. We are used to talking to people that we can see, and um, prayer is, is, is a, a challenge. It also comes from the fact that we are weak and sinful people who often resist doing the things that are best for us. For some of us, prayer fits in a category with eating healthy and getting proper sleep at night and etc. All things that we know we're supposed to do, but, you know, life. I sometimes wonder, though, how much our struggle with prayer comes from not understanding prayer properly. I wonder how many of us sabotage our own prayer lives by sneaking in unbiblical assumptions about prayer and what it is and what it's for. And, and that's why I think this morning's passage can be so helpful for us because as we listen in, I think today's passage has a lot to say to us about the nature and the practice of prayer. And I really think that these truths from God's word have the power to liberate us and to give us fresh joy in our practice of prayer. At least that's what I've been, what I've been praying the Lord will do for us this morning. Now, there's two big sections in our message today. You can see on your outline, the first half just walks through the passage, and, and it's, the first half looks at Abraham interceding for, for Sodom, and we're going to look at, within that, two main sections. Abraham was invited to know God's plans, and then he responded with intercession. And then we're going to look at our prayers, our prayer life, us praying, and, and what we can learn from Abraham's intercession as we apply it to our own, our own praying. Let's begin with Abraham interceding. And this begins right there in verse 16, as we just read this passage together. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. Now, this is one of those great little turns of phrase in the, in the narrative of Scripture, because for the last chunk, of uh, uh, the focus has been on Abraham and his family and the promise of Isaac. And we're going to get back to that in, in chapter 21. But for the rest of chapter 18 and 19, uh, the, the focus shifts away from Abraham and his family, and it shifts to the situation with Sodom. And that, that, that shift in attention is signaled by the men look down towards Sodom. So if we kind of step into the story and imagine this, by the way, I hope, I hope you know we're supposed to use our imaginations uh, in, within the bounds of Scripture. It, there's, some of these clues are designed to help us do this. And so we picture them standing on the high ground by, by Bethel, uh, sorry, Hebron, um, and, as, and they look down towards Sodom, and our attention is drawn because that's where, what we're going to be thinking about for the next chapter and a half. 
And Abraham goes with them to set them on their way. As a good host, he goes to send them along. Uh, Probably they took a lot of leftovers with them, given how much food he made for them that we looked at last week. Uh, Someone told me afterwards it was something like 50 or 60 pounds of bread that, that, that he made for them. Ton of food. And he goes to see them off. And he gets more than he bargains for. Because instead of just a send-off, Abraham gets drawn into the counsels of God. And we see that as Abraham is invited to know God's plans. Now this first unfolds with God's question. Verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? The word there for said is sometimes used in, in the Old Testament for someone saying something to themselves. So in other words, it's like they're, they're thinking to themselves. And so we're, we're being allowed into the very thought processes of God here, which is just incredible. And God is considering whether or not to let Abraham in on what he's about to do. Now, why is God asking himself that question? Why, why would God consider telling Abraham what he's about to do? Well, verse 18 tells us, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. See, Abraham isn't just a nobody. He's the father of a great nation through whom the world is going to be blessed. Well, how did that come out? Verse 19, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. For I have chosen him. It's interesting, that word for chosen is actually literally the word known. Uh, The NKJV translates it that way. For I have known him. Out of all the peoples in the earth, God chose Abraham. God knew Abraham in a special way. Drew drew him into a, a, a covenant relationship. Why? So that Abraham might train his family after him to keep God's way by doing righteousness and justice so that God might bring to Abraham what he promised. That's what this passage says. So this is so interesting because in almost an offhand way, God's words to himself about Abraham are, are, are revealing to us a very important window in how the Lord thought about Abraham and his plans for Abraham. So we saw last week that while Abraham stumbled, Abraham needed Jesus to die for his sins. The overall direction of Abraham's life was of obedient faith, right? He stumbled, he got back up, and he, he, he trusted, and he kept following. And, and, and in this verse, in these verses here, God is showing us that th- this wasn't by accident, It wasn't like Abraham could have stumbled or he could have just sort of stayed disobedient and it doesn't matter. No, no, this is showing us that, that God's plan was for Abraham to train his children to follow the Lord, which has to do with a right behavior and a right direction in life that comes through a right relationship with the Lord. Quick comment as an aside. Notice that it's Abraham as a dad who's given the responsibility to train his children in God's ways. This is a pattern that continues all throughout Scripture right up until 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God wants dads to disciple their kids. And that last phrase in verse 19, Genesis 18, 19, that last phrase is really important. God, he says, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now this last phrase, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had promised him. So that, what's this suggesting? What this is suggesting is that God's promises to Abraham depended on Abraham teaching his kids to follow God's ways. God chose Abraham that he might train his children so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So this suggests in some measure God's promises to Abraham depended on Abraham being faithful to God's covenant. That's interesting, isn't it? It's more than interesting. This is really important. This, this suggestion that, that, that God's covenant to Abraham depended on Abraham's behavior first showed up in chapter 17, verse 1 to 2, when God said, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between you and me. Between me and you. And we're going to see it in chapter 22. Because you have done this, I will surely bless you. We, we got to think about this because before chapter 17, none of God's promises to Abraham had this, uh, had this conditional element before chapter 17, everything was one-sided before chapter 17. God said, I will do this. I will do this. I will bless you. I will do this. God passed between the animal pieces alone. It was all one-sided. Now we find out from chapter 17 onwards that God has expectations on Abraham and that Abraham's expectation, or that, that these expectations God has for Abraham are going to affect whether these promises to him come true or not. So how, how do we make sense of this? How do you make sense of that? Well, there's two, there's two angles we can look at this from. Here's the first angle. God's God's grace took the initiative with Abraham. No question about that. God chose him. God pulled him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. God gave him the land. It was all grace. But Abraham needed to respond to that grace in an appropriate way. Just like us today. God has drawn near to us in the gospel and has saved us by grace. And we respond by living to please him. And just like Abraham, our response to God is empowered by God's grace. So it's not like God saves us and then kind of stands back to watch and just check up that we're doing the right thing. No, he's, he's helping us. He's, he, by his grace, he empowers us to live for him. The grace that calls us to himself empowers us to live for him. And so that's one angle on what's happening here with Abraham. By grace, God calls him to himself. And then by grace, God is training him to live in a, in a way that that uh, that is fitting for someone who's in a relationship with God. There's another angle that we can look at this, though, is to just appreciate that there is a tension here. Pure grace. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. On the other hand, I'm only going to do this if you fulfill certain things. There's tension there, isn't there? I think there is. 
God's promises are one-sided and they require that Abraham be faithful. And I want to suggest that that is a tension that stays present in God's dealings with his people until Jesus comes. See, this is one of the ways that all scripture points to Christ. Because when Jesus comes as God, he fulfills all of the promises. He lets his body be killed on the cross, fulfilling the blood path ceremony. He, he fulfills all of God's promises as God. And as a man, Jesus steps into our place and fulfills the role of a faithful son and a faithful covenant partner. And he does what no human had ever done. So you see how how all scripture points to Jesus, not, not even in just the direct statements, but even just in the unanswered questions of this passage from Genesis. How can it be both one-sided and two-sided? And the answer is Jesus, fully God, fully man, who fulfills both of this, both of these sides perfectly. Now you might think we've, we've wandered a little bit. We're just following the text here. All of this comes from God's question in verses 17 to 19 as God asks himself, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Now let's get back onto the main, main flow of thought here because God's answer to that question is, is a hearty yes, which we see in verse 20. God tells Abraham what he's about to do. Verse 20, then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, then I will know. It's interesting here. God doesn't say, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't say that. But Abraham assumes it. Abraham just assumes that if a place is very wicked and their outcry has gone up to heaven and God's going down to check it out, well, what's God going to do? He's going to destroy it because God is a just judge and that's what he does. It's assumed throughout this passage that wickedness deserves God's judgment. But God is not going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah without a thorough investigation first. So this is what that language of I will go down to see is what this points to. It, it, that, that reminds us of chapter 12 when God did that at the Tower of Babel, right? He went down to see what was going on at Babel. Now, maybe that seems strange to you because it's like, well, he's God. I mean, he knows everything. Why does he have to go down? Well, and the answer is that he doesn't, but he does because that's the kind of person that he is. Genesis 19, we're going to see next week, portrays a God who, through his angels, is actively involved in this world that he made, who allows himself, through, through his messengers, to experience the wickedness of this world. God is interested, invested, involved in the world that he's made. He could, from up in heaven, just see and know and many times he does, but there's times where just because he can, he, 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 so to speak, lets his feet get dirty and experiences things, whether that's in, in a bodily form, whether that's through his angels and, and ultimately through Jesus. And that's where this is headed. Uh, God didn't have to send two angels 
to experience abuse in Sodom, but he did because that's who he is. He's gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger. Sodom is not going to be destroyed before they've been given a thorough chance to be tested. And so that's what God is letting Abraham know. So let's review just what we've seen so far. Abraham gets invited to know God's plans. God asks, should I tell Abraham? And then he answers by telling Abraham what he's about to do. Notice that none of this came from Abraham. Like Abraham didn't come with God and say, can I ask why you're here? No, God takes the initiative to tell Abraham what he's about to do. Don't miss that. Because what we move on to next is Abraham intercedes in response. Intercede is when you ask for something on behalf of someone else. So that's like where we get the phrase intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is not anything more than asking God to do something for someone else. And what we want to see here is that Abraham's intercession for Sodom was not a mistake. This is what God was after. This is why God told Abraham what he was about to do. So that Abraham could intercede for Sodom. I mean, we could just guess that because God doesn't do things for no reason. If God does something, it's on purpose. But we see in verse 18, when God said, should I not tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Because, and he says some other things, he says, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. God's plan was for Abraham to bless the nations. And so, follow this here. God tells Abraham his plans for Sodom so that Abraham might be a blessing to Sodom by interceding for them. Isn't that amazing? God gives Abraham a chance to intercede for a wicked nation. All the nations of the earth includes the wicked ones. We also see this that, that God is inviting Abraham to intercede in verse 22. If you look at verse 22, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. The two angels as two witnesses go down to Sodom, but this third person stays there with Abraham. You've had those moments before, haven't you? And like you've had some, been having a conversation with some people and you say, okay, bye. And you know, two of them leave. And then the one of them is just kind of hanging around and you know, either they want to say something or they want me to say something. And that's what's happening here. This third person sticks around, intentionally giving Abraham the chance to, to speak. It's actually very interesting. There's an, there's an ancient Hebrew tradition that the original text here did not say Abraham stood still before the Lord. That it actually said the Lord stood still before Abraham. That, that there's a marginal note that, that that's what it actually said at first which is just incredible but we don't even need that to see that, that God is God tells Abraham I'm coming down to destroy Sodom and it's like he just waits and gives him the chance to respond Abraham's words are fairly well known 
He begins by drawing near and asking the Lord, verse 23, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? See, that's Abraham's main concern here. Is God going to be just? Is God going to destroy righteous people along with wicked people? Notice that Abraham has no problem with the idea of God destroying wicked people. He has no problem with that. His problem is not, really, you're going to destroy Sodom? No, that that makes total sense to Abraham. If they're a wicked place and their outcry has gone up to heaven, of course God would destroy them. That's, that's, That's what a just judge does. But what bothers Abraham is is whether or not God is going to sweep away the righteous people with the wicked people. Now, you might wonder, like, why is Abraham so concerned about this? Well, one answer is, who's living in Sodom? His nephew Lot with his family. So so Abraham may have a concern, like, he's, he's actually praying for Lot here. Which, again, just think of how amazing that is. After Lot had had been so unfaithful to Abraham and after Abraham had done so much to him he's praying for Lot but there's other other students of scripture have said no you know Abraham never brings Lot up here Abraham is really just after is God going to be righteous and so he prays well praise maybe quite not quite the right word as we'll talk about but he begins by interceding for Sodom and he starts with with asking about 50 people he says if, if there's 50 righteous will you destroy them with the city and God says no and he says so what about 45 this is this kind of has the feeling of like bartering or negotiating and that's actually what he's doing here he's 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 bartering with God in a sense what about 40 people Would you destroy it for 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And when Abraham hears from God that God won't destroy Sodom, if 10 righteous people are found there, then at that point, Abraham is satisfied and he ends and and they go on their way. So that's the structure of, of, of his prayer here, his intercession rather for Sodom. But what we want to do here is we want to look at three, three key elements because as Abraham makes these requests, there's three elements that kind of keep resurfacing that, that affect or that, that, that play largely in his intercession. You can see them in your outline. Um, these are three observations about Abraham's intercession for Sodom. One is that Abraham knows who God is. Abraham's intercession is based on his knowledge of God and God's character. Verse 25, which is in his first request, has probably some of the most important words in this whole section. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You're the judge of all the earth, so will you not do what's just? Abraham knows who God is and Abraham expects God to do what's right. And Abraham knows that treating righteous people as if they're wicked isn't just. That's not something God would do. And so he appeals to God's character. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? His prayer is based on his knowledge of who God is. He knew who God was. Second, he knew his place. 
Because <laughs> this is important. Because if verse 25 was all we had, you get the idea that Abraham is like, thinks he knows better than God. Like, shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? As you know, taps his feet with his arms crossed, like, like as if he's, he's holding God to account. But in the rest of the prayer, we see, no, no, Abraham knows who God is. Abraham knows who he is. He knows his place. Verse 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Literally, compared to God, he is nothing but dust. God made us out of the dust of the earth. Verse 30, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. You see, you get the sense Abraham knows he's on thin ice here. Like, am I, am I really allowed to do this? Am I, am I really allowed to keep asking God questions? Like, is this okay? That's sort of the, the, the feeling you get here. Abraham does not assume that he has a right to do this. Abraham doesn't assume that this is his job to make sure that God does the right thing. He's, there's a deep humility here. Verse 31, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Verse 32, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again but this once. So again, you see profound humility. Abraham understands he's way below God. He knows his place. He has no right to demand answers from God. And yet, and yet, our third observation here, he persisted. He persisted in prayer. He knew who God was. He knew who he was. And he persisted. That's what's so noteworthy about these verses. That's why people who aren't even familiar with so many of the details will still, you point this out to them and they'll remember, oh yeah, where Abraham started at 50 and then 45 and then 40 and 30, 20, 10. He slowly and persistently questions God about how his justice is going to work out for Sodom. Abraham's humility is matched by his boldness. A boldness that knows that God told me what he's going to do here. God's still standing here. God's letting this happen. So I'm going to keep asking. He, he gives God multiple opportunities to shut him down. But as long as the Lord allows him to speak, he humbly yet boldly continues to ask until he's satisfied and he can rest knowing, yes, God is just. Chapter 33 ends by telling us that this, this conversation between God and Abraham drew to a close. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, we know the story of Sodom isn't over yet. Next week, we're looking at all of Genesis chapter 19. And how, we're going to see how the two angels went to Sodom. They were treated terribly. Lot and his family were evacuated, and Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed with fire from heaven. Today, we stop and remember that before Sodom was destroyed, it was interceded for. And this was a part of God's plan. God deliberately gave Abraham the opportunity to intercede for Sodom before it was destroyed. And from this, we can learn a great deal about prayer in our own lives and experiences today. Now, this is where we want to pause and say, wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Is it really accurate to point to what Abraham does here and call that prayer? I mean, wasn't this more of a face-to-face -face conversation? And one response is that yes. Yes, there is a difference. There are some, some differences between what Abraham does here and what we do in prayer. Most of the time, when we use the word prayer, 
we're talking about talking to God when he's not immediately visibly present. Calling on his name when we can't see his face. So yes, what Abraham does here is not technically prayer. It's not exactly prayer. And yet, there's a lot of overlap between what Abraham does and what we do in prayer. So that's, it's not so much that this is prayer, but what he does in this conversation and what we do in prayer overlap quite a bit. And so that's where we can see and learn many lessons about prayer from Abraham's intercession. The mode is different, right? We don't have face-to-face conversations with God like this, but we're going to see that a lot is the same. And you can see how our outline in the second part matches the outline in the first part as we start by seeing, first of all, that just like Abraham, we too have been invited to know God's plans. So it started for Abraham. God invited him to know his plans. We too have been invited to know God's plans. That's where it began. God takes the initiative. God has taken the initiative in revealing his plans to us. Now maybe you're asking, I don't know what you're talking about. God's never told me any of his plans. But Jesus would disagree. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Think about everything that Jesus has made known from the Father to us. He's made known his words, his identity, that his central place as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Uh, We can finally see how all of Scripture comes to a point in Jesus. He's told us his plans for the world in the future, how he's going to reign over redeemed humanity on a new creation, that all things are going to be united in him. And he's told us his plans for the present, that his spirit-empowered church would be engaged in making learners of Jesus, disciples from all the nations. Jesus has told us so much about his plans for the world. And and over and over again, we see this word in the New Testament about the mystery of Christ. And that's this idea that there's this stuff in the Old Testament we didn't understand. And in Jesus, it's now been made clear. It's a mystery that's now revealed. And we can see so many things. We can see so many things that Abraham didn't see. Abraham didn't know Jesus and how Jesus was going to make all of this come true and all of this come clear. It was a mystery to him. It was a mystery to David. It was a mystery to Moses. But to us, it's been revealed. We can see it. As, as 1 Peter 1.12 says, things into which angels long to look. And so we need to appreciate that. We sometimes wish that God would tell us, you know, what car to buy, what house to live in, what job we're supposed to take, what shirt we're supposed to put on in the morning. Meanwhile, God has told us the big picture. God has told us where history is headed, what the goal of our lives should be. He's also told us what's going to happen to all the people who don't know him who don't seek forgiveness in Jesus. And he's told us that the goal of our lives, in whatever form it's going to take, is to be making disciples of Jesus. So like Abraham, you bet we've been invited to know God's plans, sometimes not at the level of detail that we'd like. Sometimes we'd like a little bit more detail from God than he's given us. But at the big picture, he's told us so much. We know where all of this is going. We've read the back of the book. We know who wins. We know what he's up to. 
We've been invited to know God's plan. Second, we've been invited to pray in response. Like Abraham, God has invited us to pray in response to the plans that he's revealed to us. Now, I hope this isn't a brand new idea to you because all throughout scripture, we see that much of prayer, even most of prayer, is people praying in response to what God has already told them. God tells us what he's going to do, and we pray in response. Just think, for example, brief example, think of the Lord's Prayer or the the disciples' prayer. Jesus gives us six requests to bring to God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Six requests. Every single one of those six requests is something that God has told us somewhere else in the Bible he is going to do. We don't have time this morning, so you can look it up yourself and see where God's told us his name will be honored and glorified. His kingdom is coming. His will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's going to give us this day our daily bread. He's going to, he's promised to forgive us and he's promised to protect us and bring us safely into his kingdom. So he's told us these things and then he invites us to partner with him by praying in response to them. That's how prayer works so much of, it, of the time as we see it in the Bible and as we practice it in our own lives. Now we can get more specific here and we can look at these three things that Abraham, Abraham did. He knew God's place, he knew his place and, and he persisted. And these three things are true for us as we pray in response to what God has told us. So let's start by looking at that we know who God is. Think of where the Lord's Prayer begins. Our Father in heaven. Look at that amazing revelation of who God is. Father. Some of you had good dads, and that's a wonderful comfort to you. Some of you had bad dads or no dads, and isn't it a comfort to know that you've got a Father, a Father who invites you to, to pray to Him. And yet, we see here, our Father in heaven. So he's way above us. He's powerful, reigning over the whole world. Do you see how the Lord's Prayer begins with this deep awareness of who God is? Think of Jesus in Luke 10, 21. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. If you look through some of the prayers in the New Testament, they follow this same pattern. They so often begin with who God is. And knowing who God is, we then pray for what he's revealed to us. Like Abraham, our knowledge of God directs our prayers. Second, we know our place, like Abraham. We can even see that in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What do you learn about your place from those words? Well, if God is the Father, then you are his child. God's in heaven, you are not. You're here on earth. And that's actually quite a profound understanding. You're God in heaven and I'm here on earth. We're way below him. So you see, again, this we know our place. We're we're low below the Lord, but there's this comfort of that we're we're his children. If if you know Jesus through faith, you're his child. 
hallowed be your name, not mine. Do you see how these prayers in the New Testament follow these same patterns as Abraham of knowing who God is and knowing who we are? Deep humility, but deep comfort. Think of Paul in Ephesians 3.14 who bows his knee before the Father. He gets low. He's humble before his Father. There's the comfort of closeness. So one of, the, one of these, uh, and, and we could look at numbers of other passages in the New Testament to flesh this out, that our prayers follow Abraham's pattern, knowing God and knowing our place. And finally, like Abraham, we know that Jesus has, and, and his apostles have instructed us to persist in prayer. Even if you wouldn't have the boldness on your own, even if you're like, I asked God once, that's all I got, that's all I got the courage to do. He's told us to persist in prayer. He's told us, Luke 18, 1 to 8, there's the parable of the persistent widow who basically pesters the, un, the, the, the ungodly judge. And Jesus says, do the same thing. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? How does God want you to pray day and night? All the time. You're not bugging God. When you pray for something again and again and again, you're not getting on God's nerves. You're just doing what he told you to do. He wants you to pray that way. Ephesians 6.18 tells us to be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Faithful prayer is not like a one and done thing. I prayed for that. Check it out. No, it's a, It's a regular, ongoing thing. And so we can see here as we step back that, yeah, our prayer follows the pattern of Abraham's intercession here. It begins with God. Way back it begins with God. It's his idea. God has taken the initiative. God has taken the first step, actually all the steps, to reveal his will to us, to invite us to know his plans, and then to tell us to pray. And then he invites us to partner by praying persistently, responding to what he's told us with a deep awareness of who he is and who we are. So why is this important? Well, I think if we see prayer in this way, we'll realize that prayer is not a burden, but a privilege. See, if prayer was our idea, then we could kind of take it or leave it. And we're like, ah, yeah, some people pray, but yeah, I'm just not really into that or whatever. It's a, it can be a burden. But if we realize that the person in charge of the universe has invited you to tap into the very outworking of history as you know what he's up to and partner with him in prayer, won't we just be blown away by how profound that is? Think of some of the big movers and shakers in the world. Think of the World Economic Forum people meeting in Switzerland or the president meeting in the White House Think of if you got an invitation to go join one of those strategy meetings and to bring some of your requests. What, what would stop, like, could anything stop you from doing that? And in prayer, the person who is working out all of history towards his ends has told us what those ends are and invited us to talk to him about it and to pray. That's incredible. And getting started is as easy as opening your Bible 
in the Bible, we find out what is God up to in this world. What are his plans? In the Bible, we see how do we pray in response as we learn from the prayers in Scripture. In the Bible, we see who is God as we pray with an awareness of who he is. In the Bible, we see who are we. And in the Bible, we get all the encouragement we need to keep on praying persistently. You can pick up the Bible, you can read any passage, and you can just ask, what's this telling me about God? What's this telling me about myself? What's this telling me about God's plans for the world? And there, you've got fuel for prayer, right there. And that's what I really want to encourage you to do today. I could encourage you to pray in so many different ways. I'd love to encourage you to pray by signing up for our missions prayer updates that we send, send out here at the church. You can actually partner in the mission to bless the nations by praying for our missionaries. I'd love to encourage you to join us at our monthly prayer services where we deliberately pray for the mission of God in the world. I'd love to encourage you to download the Operation World app on your phone that every day will walk you through a different nation of the world that you get to pray for. Or the Joshua Project app on your phone that every day will remind you to pray for a different unreached people group. There are some really practical ways that we can be a part of God's mission to bless the nations through prayer. But most importantly, I just want to encourage you to open up your Bibles and pray. What's this telling me, God, about who you are? What's this telling me about who I am? What's this telling me about your plans for the world? And I'm going to pray in response to those things. Humbly, confidently, persistently, like Abraham. So in the quiet of these next moments, would you ask God to help you with this? As we take a few moments to be quiet together, would you ask God to help you want this? Would you ask God to help you see the incredible, incredible privilege that he's given us in prayer? Would, he, would, you, would you ask him to help you see prayer as not a burden, but a, a, a gift that you want to take him up on? And then would you ask God for wisdom to actually put these things into practice? And like Abraham, humbly, confidently, persistently intercede on behalf of the many who need to know him. Father in heaven, thank you for what we've seen in your word here this morning. Thank you for inviting Abraham and us to know you and to know your plans, to know our place, and inviting us to pray in response. Give us eyes to see the, the deep privilege of prayer. And would you help us, Lord, as a church, as, as individuals, to be people of prayer. Father in heaven, let your name be honored as holy. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth just like it is in heaven. Provide for us, Lord. Forgive us. Protect us. And make us people of prayer. For Jesus' sake, amen.